Thank you for joining us for the Covenant Gathering here on Eurofolkradio.com. Our host is Pastor Visser from CovenantPeople'sMinistry.org. We hope that you are inspired to grow in faith and wisdom by studying the scriptures each week with us. It is written, Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, and gather the children. So let us gather together for this Bible study hour with our host, Pastor Visser, on the Eurofolk Radio Network. Good afternoon to my friends here on the East Coast. It is December 3rd, Saturday, and it is 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That makes it 5 p.m. in London, England. And I'd like to thank everybody for joining me today for the second part of a sermon I began last weekend. And if you were with me here on the Eurofolk Radio Network last week, on November 26th, you'll know that I brought forth a study looking at four bad girls of the Bible. One being Eve, another Rahab, Jezebel, and finally Delilah. And in that particular sermon, I spent a fair deal, or a fair amount of my time, dealing with Jezebel, because I feel the story of Jezebel is quite important. We spent a little time looking at Eve and a little time looking at Rahab, and unfortunately, we were not able to actually conclude looking at Samson and Delilah as we should have. And that, my friends, is quite unfortunate because in the narrative of Samson and Delilah, we have a metaphor or a parable of race mixing. Because there is no doubt that Samson was a Nazarite and forbidden to cut his hair. There also is no doubt that Delilah was in cahoots with the Philistines and likely a Canaanite herself. And what we can learn from Samson and Delilah was that Delilah pushed upon Samson greatly until he finally broke. And then once Samson gives Delilah the secret of his strength... Well, he is taken, he is blinded, and the Canaanites are able to profit upon him. And ultimately, at the end, Samson kills both his Nazarite bloodline and many Philistines that were roundabout making a mockery of him. And right there, in the narrative of Samson and Delilah, we read about what Solomon said in Proverbs 3, 5, and 7. That is the end of all those who go after the quote-unquote strange woman. Because we are blinded in the process, usually, unbeknownst to ourselves, the other races seemingly want to upgrade their genetics, and I suppose there's nothing really inherently wrong about that. But in the end, they profit, leech, and live off of the Nazarite, and ultimately put him to death. Now, for anybody listening who felt I was unnecessarily misogynistic or chauvinist in looking at four bad girls of the Bible last week, well, we're going to keep things nice and equal today and look at four bad guys of Scripture. Today, we're going to be looking at some of the behaviors that were brought to us in the pages of the Bible by Cain, Balaam, Judas, 
and we'll conclude with Simon Magius, also known as Simon the Sorcerer. But before we actually get to that, I would like to thank Paul English and the Euro Folk Radio Network for allowing me this soapbox to address God's people. And without further ado, what list of biblical bad guys would be correct if it didn't start with Cain, the first murderer? Now, I have done shows right here on this venue dealing with Cain and many other preachers greater than I have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that Cain was not the offspring of Adam, that is, Adam the man. And so we must begin here, because in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, it says that Cain was, quote, of that wicked one, end quote. And he slew his half-brother because his own works were evil. So we have to take a closer look at what made Cain kill Abel, and that way we'll be able to see how exactly he was spawned from the wicked and or lawless one, also known as Satan himself. Now this is the part of the study that is essential. And like with the four bad girls of Scripture, this study is being brought to you in the hopes that if women are looking for a potential mate or looking to get married and settle down, they will know what behaviors to avoid. And therefore, let's look at Cain. Because this is so essential that it proves that the serpent has a seed on earth. So where should we begin this Saturday afternoon in Genesis chapter 4? Right towards the beginning of the Old Testament. Beginning in verse 1, we learn, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain, and had said, I have gotten a man from Yahweh. And again, she bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto Yahweh. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. And Yahweh had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and his offering he had no respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And Yahweh said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shall thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. End quote. Now that, if you will, is Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 in their entirety, as it is rendered in the authorized 1611 King James Version of the Bible. And literally hundreds of studies have been published into these verses. And what we need to realize is that these Greek words have deeper meanings. So what we should look at is this, concerning Eve and her quote-unquote beguilement. Take notice, before we even look at the, the deeper etymology of these words in the Strong Concordance, that according to the King James, Eve again, meaning continued to bear Abel, and this proves that he and Cain were fraternal twins. And that sheds more light onto why they both bring their offerings, quote-unquote, in the process of time, meaning on the same exact day. 
And another interesting fact that many people probably overlook is this word tiller that is used to describe Cain. It's taken from the Hebrew word Abed and it means a slave or a servant according to Strong's number Hebrew 5647. So what this proves is that Cain and his future seed would always be proverbial slaves to the ground or this world. Which ties perfectly into the book of Revelation where we learn that the number 666 is a human number and that Cain's offspring can only exploit the replacement seed of Seth. And so... Even today, the Jew or the modern Edomite, descendants of Cain, are slaves to this world. They do not understand Yahweh. And that is why Christ much later would say, you cannot serve God or mammon. You cannot be a slave to God or else you'll hate mammon. And you cannot be a servant to mammon or else you'll have enmity or hatred towards Yahweh. So right from the beginning, Yahweh has no respect for Cain. He has no respect for his offering, while the keeper of the sheep, Abel, is forever considered righteous. Therefore, we can already deduct, based on what we've studied so far this afternoon, that Cain was most definitely a bad guy of the Bible. And I want to digress right here, because the way of the fool, who says within his heart there is no God, is to come in and say, well, look at Cain, look at Abraham, look at Samson, look at Solomon. These guys erred, did they not? They made human mistakes. And they never even understand that many of these examples, much like Cain, are just that, examples. Examples of what happens when we are unrighteous, like Solomon going after, Del or Samson going after Delilah, or Solomon after strange women, or an example of what happens when we are righteous, as Abel was. So Abel was righteous, Cain was not. Now, did Yahweh God err in creation? Of course not. So I'm going to provide for you a quote before we move on to the doctrine of Balaam and looking at what Balaam, the Mesopotamian soothsayer, did to the children of Israel by providing you a quote from the Protevangelion chapter 10. I believe I brought this forth about a two months ago, here on the Eurofolk Radio Network. But this is rendered in the lost books of the Bible, also considered the for forgotten books of Eden. This is not canonized, but it sheds light on the conception of Cain. We learn in the Protevangelion chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, quote, When her sixth month was come, Joseph returned from his building houses abroad, which was his trade. And entering into the house, found the Virgin Mary grown big. Then, smiting upon his face, he said, With what face can I look up to Yahweh my God? Or what shall I say concerning this young woman? For I received her a virgin out of the temple of Yahweh my God, and have not preserved her as such. Who has thus deceived me? Who has committed this evil in my house? And seducing the virgin from me has defiled her. Is not the history of Adam exactly accomplished in me? For in the very instant of his glory, the serpent came and found Eve alone and seduced her. Just after the same manner it has happened unto me. Then Joseph, arising from the ground, called her and said, 
O thou, who hast been so much favored by God, why hast thou done this? Why hast thou thus debased thy soul, who is educated in the Holy of Holies, and received thy food from the hand of angels? But she, with a flood of tears, replied, I am innocent and have known no man. End quote. Now, I understand that that is a lengthy set of passages. It's the Protevangelion, chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. But what this non-canonized book proves is that it was once commonplace, the idea that Cain was, was born of who? The serpent. Because he says, Joseph, the serpent came and found Eve alone and seduced, or expatio, sexually seduced her. And this most assuredly aligns with Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians. Because he says in chapter 11, verse 3, quote, I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. If you take a look at this word beguiled, it is from the Greek word expatio. And it is plainly defined in every concordance as holy and or sexually seduced. So we have already proven, not only is Cain a bad guy of the Bible, but his bastard clan are without a deed, without a doubt, bad seeds, both then and now. And Yahweh God did not err in creation, my friend. That's what we need to understand. Cain didn't just become a murderer serendipitously because he chose one day to wake up and murder Abel. Paul gives you the answer as to that. Abel was righteous, Cain was wicked, and it, therefore it is the way of Cain to murder the righteous when they are wicked. And that is very important. The other thing that I want to bring forth is many people will go right to what we covered already. Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 where we learn... Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from Yahweh. And they'll take that as if that means somehow or another Cain was not born of the serpent. But what does Eve say when she begets Cain? She says, I have begotten a man, or I have received a man, from Yahweh. Right? So, it doesn't say she received a man from Adam. It says that Eve thanked Yahweh for Cain. But, we can also read in Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 4, Behold, all souls are mine, saith Yahweh. As the soul of the Father, so also is the soul of the Son mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. That, my friend, is Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4. And if we understand that all souls are Yahweh God, then it is the proper mindset to thank Yahweh God for any child that is born unto us. And that is exactly what Eve did. She did not lie, and she was not confused. She said, I have begotten a man-child from Yahweh, because she understood Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4 says, All souls belong to Yahweh. Now, on the topic of Cain, before we actually get to Balaam, 
And Balaam is a story I really love to tell and is extremely appropriate for this latter era where many soothsayers and magicians have risen and tried to deceive the elect. Turn with me over to Jude, and we're going to look at verse 11, where Jude, the half-brother of Christ, says, Woe unto them! For they, referencing the natural brute beasts that are meant to be taken and destroyed, meaning the false prophets, in context to the book of Jude, which is only one chapter, these same false prophets having eyes full of adultery, etc. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gain, saying, of core. What is that? That's the general epistle of Jude, verse 11. And he continues in the next verse. These, these false prophets, these soothsayers who go after the error of Balaam or the way of Balaam, the way of Cain, these are spots in your feast of charity. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water. We just covered two terms. Right here in the epistle of Jude. The false prophet will go after the quote-unquote way of Cain. And we have proven today the way of Cain is murder. Murdering the righteous, as Paul says. Why did Cain slay Abel? Because his own deeds were wicked. But Abel was righteous. Thus the way of Cain is murder. But who else does Jude say? Uh, what else does he say they go after? And what else does he say that a woe should be pronounced against them for going? Well, they run greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward. Therefore, we need to take a look at Balaam and what exactly it was that he did. And this is a great Old Testament example. When looking at the way of Cain, which is murder, and when looking at the way of Balaam, which is preaching for the highest bidder as a false prophet, we must understand that both of these behaviors, the way of Cain and the doctrine of Balaam, are addressed by Yahshua in the book of Revelation much later. So, what can be said about Balaam? Well, he's a less known idiot from the Holy Bible. There's no doubt about that. The Judeo-Christians rarely preach on the counterfeit prophet Balaam. And there's a reason for that, in my own estimation. Balaam eventually was murdered at the slaughter of Midian. But he was born in Mesopotamia. And he is most assuredly considered a full-scale soothsayer. This is why Balaam is not only considered a false prophet, but he's considered, what, a magician. And today I'm going to give you two examples. Simon, the magician, or Simon the sorcerer, but also Balaam, the Mesopotamian soothsayer. Now, the story of Balaam's false prophecies are mostly transcribed in the book of Numbers, so please turn there this afternoon. But he's also mentioned several times in the New Testament as an eternal example of what not to follow. What should we not follow? The doctrine of Balaam. And Balaam, again, to paraphrase and to put it in a nutshell, would preach falsely 
for whomsoever would pay him the most, much like Joel Olstein, Billy Graham, and John Hagee do today. Again, Jude says, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the, the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. Now, in the Old Testament, this is known as the gainsaying of Korah. And this is where Yahweh God opened up the ground to swallow many unruly and disobedient Israelites. Peter gives us a second witness in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. These, referencing false prophets, quote, have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Besor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumbass speaking with a man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. End quote. Who forbade the madness of the prophet being Balaam his own ass? And my friends, there is another metaphor in the story of Balaam that we should pay close attention to. Because oftentimes a quote-unquote dumb ass has more ability to see an angel of the Lord or understand the reality of Satan than the natural man, quote-unquote. So, now that it is established that Balaam is mentioned many times in the New Testament, we need to look at exactly what happened. But nothing that Peter or Jude have to say about Balaam is near as important as the words of Yahshua himself. And my friends, this is found in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. You don't need to turn there, but keep your finger in Numbers chapter 22. Christ says here, quote, I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication, end quote. Interesting, the doctrine of Balaam teaches people to fornicate. But Yahweh's law forbids all form of fornication. In fact, Yahshua Messiah would say that fornication and or pornea in the Greek is the only grounds for divorce. But be that that that's a study for another day. I've preached on Balaam and his ass many times. But Revelation chapter 2 verse 14 says many of the children of Israel then, like in the book of Numbers, and now will stumble over the stumbling block because they are taught by the false prophet to eat things sacrificed unto idols, right? And to commit fornication. So one thing you need to understand about the Babylonian Jewish Talmud is in almost every instance of the name Jesus Christ or Yahshua, his name in the Talmud is replaced with this same false prophet Balaam. So when a rabbi is referencing Balaam, that is a code word for Yahshua Messiah. And it stands to reason because Christ rebukes a church in the book of Revelation right at the very beginning for not only going after the way of Cain, but for holding to the doctrine of Balaam. So the only way to understand the doctrine of Balaam, which is what the Southern Poverty Law Center, the ADL, and most of this Zionist Judeo-Christendom espouses, we need to look at it. 
Now, I'm sure you know the narrative. The children of Israel were camping out on the plains of Moab near Jericho. And they had just wiped out both the kings of Og and all the Amorites. They had already been commanded by Yahweh in Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 9 to, quote, distrust not the Moabites, neither contend with them in battle, end quote. Yet the current king of the Moabites, his name was Balak. And according to Numbers chapter 22 verse 3, Balak, the king of the Moabites, was so afraid of the Israelites because they were many. So what does he do? What do you think any king or politician (laughs) or candidate of man will do when they want to rule over God's people and they fear them because their number is too great? Well, that example is provided in Balak. He sends for Balaam, the son of Beor, offering the rewards of divination, right? He was a sorcerer. And in Numbers chapter 22, beginning in verse 6, we learn, Balak says to Balaam, Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people, for they are too mighty for me. Peradventure I shall prevail, that we may spite them, and I may drive them out of the land. And needless to say, Balaam, because he is a false prophet, and he is a Mesopotamian, agrees to do this. He accepts this offer from King Balaam. So Yahweh hurriedly tells him, quote, Thou shall not go with them, thou shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Where's that? Numbers chapter 22, verse 12. Nevertheless, Balaam sets out the next morning. He saddles his ass, and he goes to fulfill his contract to the king of the Moabites, Balak. And what happens? He was already told by Yahweh, don't go and curse my people, the Israelites. But Balak, or Balaam, had a contract to fulfill to the king of Moab. And the king of Moab's goal was to defeat the Israelites in battle. So, we learn in Numbers chapter 22, verse 22, that while Balaam is on his way to prophesy falsely against the children of Israel, quote, the angel of Yahweh stood in the way for an adversary against him, end quote. What I want you to understand is if we were to read this straightforwardly, in the Hebrew, it would read as such. Numbers twenty-two, twenty-two. An angel of Yahweh stood in the way as Satan against him in Hasatan, or in adversary. Meaning, we could logically argue that Yahweh sent Satan against Balaam as the angel of the Lord to stand and resist him. And perhaps you know what goes on to say. Now, we're not going to argue (laughs) over whether this is Satan or not. Because the narrative straightforwardly says Yahweh sends an angel to be an adversary against this false prophet. And the false prophet was told, don't go and falsely prophesy. But it didn't stop the false prophet because Balaam answered to Balak and himself, not Yahweh God. So once again, Yahweh takes this matter into his own hands. And the story of how Balaam's ass gains the ability to speak is classic. Continue reading in Numbers chapter 22, but verse 28. Quote, Yahweh opened the mouth of the ass, and she said unto Balaam, 
What have I done unto thee that thou hast smitten me these three times? End quote. And that's a question. Now, many people will argue over this narrative. But the point is, is Balaam was riding on his ass and he comes to an area where there's a curvature in the road. And an angel of the Lord stands as an adversary against Balaam to withstand him. But Balaam did not see the angel. And so it stands today. There are many sects of Christian identity who come in and they deny angels. They deny that Satan is a literal deity. And that not only is Judaism 101, my friend, but that's a Sadducee. That's a Sadducee. So, he starts to beat his female ass that he's riding upon. And Yahweh opened the mouth of the ass. And this, my friend, is why we learn all the way back in Second Peter, and we already quoted this, but was rebuked for his iniquity. Balaam, the dumbass, speaking with a man's voice, forbade the madness of the prophet. So because the de- because the donkey was able to speak out and say, Hey, Balaam, You're such a great prophet, right? But you don't see Satan standing right here. The dumb animal was able to see the donkey standing in the road. And what the narrative proves is that oftentimes even an animal can forbid the madness of a prophet. And the way of Balak was to commission Balaam to go down and tell the Israelites, hey, guess what? You're not going to win in battle, even though their numbers were so great. Does this make sense as to why later in the New Testament we are commanded to quench not our spirit? The doctrine of Balaam is just that. To quench our spirit so we will not feel victorious, so we'll all together give up the backbone give up our our testosterone, our testicles in short, and say, well, we can't win this battle when Yahweh had already prophesied that the battle could be won, my friend. So Balaam, after this point, begins to bless the children of Israel, but Joshua himself resists Balaam and ultimately delivers the children of Israel. And that, my friend, is the story of Balaam in a nutshell. The moral behind Balaam is that a false prophet can preach for the kings of men, or the presidents, we could say, to the highest bidder, just as 2 Peter says, promoting the doctrine of Balaam, and in oftentimes, in other cases even, the way of Cain being murder, and the children of Israel will accept that stumbling block. So what exactly is the stumbling block that Balaam cast before our people, the Israelites? Pay attention to what happens next and how yet another attack on Israel's chosen race started. Quote, And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredoms with the daughters of Moab, and they called the people unto the sacrifices of their bogus gods. And the people did eat, and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor. And the anger of Yahweh was kindled against the Israel people. And Yahweh said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before Yahweh against the sun, that the fierce anger of Yahweh may be turned away from my people Israel. 
And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one of his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. End quote. That's Numbers chapter 25 verses 1 through 5. And does that not sound eerily similar to Luke chapter 19 verse 27 where Yahshua says, Mine enemy that would not that I should reign over them, bring them thither and slay them before me? But this is why, this is the stumbling block, my friend. The people began to commit whoredoms, number one, with the daughters of Moab, meaning miscegenation, marrying the non-covenant people that Yahweh forbids, and give sacrifices unto their bogus gods, in violation of the first and second commandments. Now, do you understand why Solomon would write so extensively on the way of the stranger, the strange woman, or the strange man in Proverbs chapter 3, 5, and 7, telling us to stay away? Well, it makes perfect sense. Woe unto them, they've gone the way of Cain. We've covered Cain. Cain was a murderer, a bastard child, and was told, much like Yahshua told the Jews in John chapter 8, if you do well, shall it not abide, and shall it not be well for you? But my point is with this. John chapter 8, where Yahshua told the Jews the same thing. And in Genesis, the narrative where Yahweh tells Cain the same thing is only proof of the long-suffering mercy and grace of Yahweh God because Cain and the Jew, his offspring, cannot do good. It is impossible for them to. So who should we look at in regards to this? Well, let's take a look at Judas. Judas is well known, right? He's well known because it is he who betrayed Yahshua, right? Well, before we actually get over here to look at Judas, because Judas is definitely more well known than Balaam of Mesopotamia. We've covered from 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, there is a way of Balaam. We've covered also from Jude. And if we have not, let's reiterate this one more time. In Jude chapter 1, verse 1, we learn that there is a error of Balaam. So the way of Balaam is the same exact thing as the error of Balaam, according to Jude chapter 1, verse 11. We've also turned to Revelation chapter 2 verse 14 where we learn that in judgment, Yahshua says many churches will hold to the doctrine of Balaam, right? And I told you in part what the doctrine of Balaam is according to the New Testament. But the doctrine of Balaam is also outlined in the Old Testament as well. So turn to the minor prophet Micah. And in Micah chapter 6. We learn beginning in verse 6. We learn beginning in verse 4, excuse me. I, Yahweh speaking, brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted and what Balaam, the son of Besor, answered him from Shittim unto Gagal that ye may know the righteousness of Yahweh. That is why Balaam exists, not only in the book of the minor prophet Micah, chapter 6, verse 5, but also in Jude and Second Peter. 
not for the false prophet to come in and say, look, these guys are bad examples, so don't be a Christian. But so we can come in and say, look how they erred. They went after the way of Balaam. And let me interject here. Baal Peor, the terminology of Baal Peor, Peor is a mountain, my friend, in Edom. Baal Peor was the lowercase deity and or God that was put atop Mount Peor. So when we say Baal Peor, when we learn that the Israelites in Psalms separated themselves, for example, in Psalms chapter 106, verse 28, they, the Israelites, joined themselves unto Baal Peor in aid of the sacrifices of the dead, end quote. That is a polite way of saying the Israelites went and worshipped the Lord of the Gap. Baal Peor, my friend, we were serving another God and God had no other option but to open the ground in the gainsaying of Kor and swallow those Israelites. And it'll be no different in judgment. And it is no different for Judas, my friend. Yahshua taught extensively on Judas. And contrary to what the Jew likes to do in coming in and trying to portray Judas as having good intentions in betraying Yahshua, my intention today is to prove to you that Judas was nothing but a wicked person. Period. Throughout all four Gospels, there is nothing saying that Judas was anything more than a chosen devil of Yahshua. For example, consider John chapter 6, verse 70. Yahshua says, Have not I chosen you twelve disciples, and one of you is a devil? Let's read that one more time. Have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? Who do you think Christ is referencing there? Yahshua called Judas a devil, and we're going to prove today that Judas was a devil. He did not have good intentions and he did not believe he was going to bring the kingdom about by force, by betraying our Redeemer. Not one way, not in any way, shape, or form, my friend. He's quite arguably one of the better known disciples of Jesus Christ. And it's due to the fact that he was a thieving snake. He eventually betrays our beloved Savior to the serpentile enemy. And that, my friend, is why Iscariot is known as the traitor or the betrayer. <laughs> Just like Cain, right? And it's easy to see how Cain went after the way of Cain because he was the first murderer, according to John chapter 8. But we should also notice that Judas, a man from Escariot, the devil <laughs> that Christ referred him to be, did also the way of Cain. And I've covered numerous aspects about Judas. But what we need to understand is that he was the keeper of the treasury. Quote, unquote. And that stands to reason, does it not? Because devils and Jews will flock to a position where they have control over money. Notice also that Satan is considered the anointed cherub that cover. Covers what? Well, the mercy seat of Yahweh God. So as Satan stood over the very mercy seat of Yahweh God, it was Judas who held the very bag of the treasury as Yahshua went and preached. And he was also among the first group chosen. So when Christ says, 
Have I not chosen you twelve and one of you is a devil in John chapter 6 verse 70? It stands to reason he is referencing Judas Iscariot. And not only that, the Gospels confirm that and we'll prove that today. Consider also that in Ezekiel chapter 28, and we've covered this before, the devil was considered, quote, perfect in his ways from the day that he was created until iniquity was found within him, end quote. And so it stands. We see the same exact parallel in Judas Iscariot. Now this shouldn't be surprising because Luke chapter 22 verses 3 through 5 teaches us, quote, Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and the captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. End quote. So, did Judas have good intentions, or did he consciously conspire to betray Yahshua for the mere price of a slave? My friend, it was the latter. And in order to really prove this, there's several things that need to be said about Judas. But to me, the most important thing to notice about his betrayal is that it came from a close friend. And this is in keeping with Old Testament prophecies. Like we read about in Proverbs chapter 27 verse 6, quote, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. End quote. And consider this one as well. This is Psalm 41 verse 9, quote, Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. End quote. Yes, all of these verses, Proverbs and Psalm, are prophecies that were fulfilled in Judas Iscariot. And the prophecy that was fulfilled according to the 41st Psalm is he has lifted up his heel against me, going all the way back to Cain in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, where we are told, it shall, bru- it shall bruise thy head, thou shall bruise his heel. Judas lifted up his heel against Yahshua, but Yahshua bruised and crushed the head of the serpent with his sacrifice on Golgotha. And Jesus also taught us that a man's foe shall be they of his own household in Matthew chapter 10 verse 36. And my friends, this truth certainly rings true today. Certainly rings true today. And I'm sure in a lot of ways I'm preaching to the choir. But a prophet has no honor save in his own country. What you need to understand as well is that the devil entered into Judas and the devil entered into Judas when Yahshua held the sop up to his mouth. So, during the Last Supper, Jesus says, quote, He that dippeth his hand with me in this dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goes as is written of him. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? Yahshua said unto him, Thou hast said. End quote. Now that's the gospel according to St. Matthew chapter 26, verse 25. And Judas says, Is it I? Am I the betrayer? Yahshua says, Thou hast said it. Very important 
Because much later, after the betrayal, Pilate would come and ask Yahshua, Are you the king of the Jews? And Yahshua would say, Thou hast said it. Yahshua didn't say, I said it. He didn't say, You are right, you are correct. He said, Out of your own mouth, Thou hast said it. Very important to understand. So for further clarity, we need to address a few aspects about Judas to prove he was a wicked man of Cariot, a land in Edom. He was obviously a selfish man, and he cared less about the poor. This is proven from John chapter 12, verses 4 through 8. Judas deceived those that he stole from, including Jesus Christ. This is confirmed in Acts chapter 1, verse 17. He was also, throughout his entire walk, a steadfast unbeliever in the teachings of Yahshua, according to Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. He also obviously kept and left himself open to satanic influence. And we covered part of that today in Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 through 16. And so... Towards the end of his life, Judas engaged in bribery, according to that same chapter, in order to forsake the Savior of the Israelites. Somebody that Judas considered a friend and broke bread with and betrayed with a kiss, which is why I took you to Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6, where we learn the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So bottom line is this, irregardless of what the Jew tries to do to obfuscate the truth about Judas, all four Gospels confirm he was wicked from step one, from being amongst the first called, into the ultimate betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, which are what? The mere price of a slave, according to our law, according to the Mosaic Pentateuch. And so... Now that we've actually proven that Judas is wicked and I've told you where to look, don't listen to the way of the enemy to come in and say, well, uh, Judas had good intentions. Yeah, okay, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The road to hell is definitely paved with good intentions. And if Yahshua said it would have been better for Judas to have never been born, then what Christ is saying is that he should have never been born. It would have been better that Judas had not been born than to be born, chosen, a vessel of dishonor, and betray Yahshua. And what I said about Yahshua holding the very sop up to Judas' mouth, causing the devil to enter into him, in fulfillment of Yahshua's own teaching that have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil, is found in the thirteenth chapter of the Gospel according to John. And we learn, beginning in verse 25, 24. Simon Peter therefore beckoned unto Yahshua that he should ask who it was of whom he spake. Remember Yahshua said, whom I, who I eat with and who dips in with me, the same is. Well, Peter says, who is it? Verse 25. Then lying on Jesus' breast said unto him, Lord, who is the betrayer? Verse 26. Pay close attention. Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. 
Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now do you understand why Yahshua said it would have been better for Judas to have never been born? Because Judas was called. Out of twelve disciples, he was chosen. But he was chosen to be a vessel of dishonor. He was chosen to be the betrayer. He was chosen to fulfill Proverbs 27, the 41st Psalm. And Christ said, at the end of the day, it would have been better that Judas had never been born. So let's quickly, now that time is getting away from me, take a look at Simon Magius. He's also known throughout history as Simon the Sorcerer and Simon the Magician. And he's not very different than Balaam the Mesopotamian soothsayer. We read in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 9, and I'll be reading the Noah Webster revision of the King James Version of the Bible, which was released in 1833. Many people are not aware that Noah Webster has his own Bible. And for my female listeners who took offense with the first part of this two-part series, Tactic of the Lawless Whores, I definitely suggest the Noah Webster Bible because it is a revision of the King James. And those were the parts he took out. He didn't like hearing the word whore, so he replaced it with lewd woman. He didn't like hearing the word bastard, so he replaced it with a child of ill repute. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. Pay close attention. There was a certain man called Simon who before in that same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that for a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and the signs that were done. That's Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 13. And we learn here that Simon Magius was a sorcerer of great status, and his morbid magical arts among the Samaritans was certainly well known, at least during the time of the Acts. And as soon as phony Simon sees the apostle Philip baptizing other Christians, he quickly decides he wants to be, or wants to have, part of that gift. Nothing wrong with that, right? So he poses as a believer until he finds an opportunity to offer the early church money in exchange for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this, my friend, is where the modern-day negative term of simony is derived from. And simony, as an Anglo-Saxon word, denotes the purchase for money of spiritual offices. Spiritual offices. Are you starting to think about the Roman Catholic Church? Well, let's continue to read this gloomy account. Quote, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. Then they laid their hands upon them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through the laying of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands, he also may receive the Holy Spirit. End quote. 
That's verses 14 through 19 in Acts chapter 8. And once again, that is the Noah Webster Bible. So this Simon, alongside the whore living goddess known as Helena, who was also known as Salome to John the Immerser, the same Salome who ultimately consented unto having his head removed from his body, or what do we know as some of the earliest Gnostic leaders, my friend? And Simon Magius was a leader of a sect of the Gnostics. Now, I myself have no problem preaching Gnostic books, but what we need to know about Simon Magius, also known as the Sorcerer, is this ultimately led up to the papacy where they sell indulgences and the papacy will come in and say, you know what, Peter was the first pope. Isn't it interesting that Peter went to Babylon according to the Bible? That's confirmed in his first epistle. Chapter 5, verse 13. And it was Paul who went to Rome according to the 28th chapter of Acts. The so-called lost 28th chapter of Acts, but it was Paul who wrote a general epistle to the Romans. It was Paul who had dealings with the Romans, not Peter, whom the lying papacy comes in and says is the first pope. Instead of Simon Magius. So this Simon works with Helena. And Helena was known as Salome. And they not only helped to found the bogus Gnostic sect, but through turn of events, they helped to spawn the not-so-holy Roman Catholic Church as we know it today. And time will not allow me to actually divulge into that, but I'm sure there's many preachers here on Eurofolk Radio that have pro- proven the differences between simony or Simon Magius, who was a Samaritan whom the Judeans had no dealings with, and the Catholic Church as we know it today, especially Vatican II. It's not so strange that Simon Magius was worshipped in place of Yahweh as some type of a false god. And the term Magius, which is affixed to his name and not his last name, simply means a worker of magic or a sorcerer. So when you're saying Simon Magius, you're saying Simon the Sorcerer. You're saying Simon the Magician. And let me interject, according to the Apolistic Constitutions that was written in 375 AD, this same Simon was accused of engaging in lawlessness. Lawlessness, which is another name for Satan, the lawless one. So whether we're dealing with the way of Cain or the error or doctrine or way of Balaam, it all leads back to who? The devil. So, what do we need to learn? Well, what we need to learn is how Peter answered Simon. When Simon comes and says, hey, I want to have the gift of the Holy Spirit, not through works, not through faith or obedience, but through this money donation. Continue reading in Acts chapter 8, but verse 20, quote, Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray Yahweh, if perhaps the thought of thy heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness, the bond of iniquity. And then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come against me. End quote. 
Notice Simon didn't believe all along, did he? But he wasn't above abiding with Philip, just like Judas abode with Christ, pretending to be some type of faithful to achieve his end. In the case of Judas, it was betraying the Savior. In the case of Simon, it was because he desired the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through money. And that, my friend, is something we cannot buy. The gift of the Holy Spirit. That is a gift just like grace, right? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, By grace ye are saved. Not of yourself, it is a gift of Yahweh God. Now do you understand why Peter answered this chump in the manner that he did? Because if we believe that we can buy our way into heaven through an indulgence, if we believe that the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is grace, can be purchased as opposed to a gift of Yahweh God freely given to those that obey, we are guilty of simony. Simony, my friend. And so, in looking at four bad girls of the Bible, Eve, Rahab, Jezebel, and Delilah, and today, in examining the characteristics of four bad guys of the Bible, Cain, Balaam, Judas, and Simon, I pray that my my people, our people, Yahweh's children, His sons and daughters, will be better equipped to know what to look for when choosing a mate to go through life with. Simon begat the Simonians. They were a sect of the Gnostics. The Gnostics ultimately became, at the Council of Nicaea, conglomerated with pagan tree Christianity, and Constantine ultimately melded them into what we know as the Roman Catholic Church today. So no wonder they say, all you have to do is pay a little korban, right? That's what Yahshua taught. And you have an indulgence. Yahshua taught on this very concept as well, my friend. So, do not be surprised by this in any way, shape, or form. Let me interject as we round it down. Many of the quotes I provided in these two sermons are also available in my book published in 2012, but written nine and a half years ago in 2007, Tactics of the Serpent. Tactics of the Serpent. These two sermons are loosely based on those sermons, Tactic of the Lawless Children and Tactics of the Lawless Whores. So, swing by CovenantPeople'sMinistry.org and look at the book section and you can download a free copy of Tactics of the Serpent and it also includes the extremely long treaties that I wrote on the devil titled, titled Tactics of the Lawless One. Simon was lawless, Balaam was lawless, and in short, we could say every one of the examples, with the possible exception of Rahab the harlot, were lawless. Do not follow after their end, my friends. So, until next time, this is Pastor Visser, War for Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this Bible study lesson with Pastor Visser of the Feminine People's Ministry. These teachings are recorded for you live by the Eurofolk Radio Broadcasting Network and can also be found in the archives of our church's website, which is covenantpeoplesministry.org. If you have any questions or comments regarding these messages, please write to us at CPM, Post Office Box 256, Brooks, Georgia, 30205, USA. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Covenant Gathering. May God bless you and keep you and be with you always.